Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at nortonsimon.org. Support for Alaist comes from Visual Communications, presenting VC Film Fest, celebrating 40 years of Asian and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander filmmaking, with over 200 films May 1st through 10th. Info at festival.vcmedia.org. It's Film Week on Alaist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with biographer Scott Iman who's done such terrific books on John Wayne and Cary Grant. His new book, Charlie Chaplin vs. America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. You just heard our Film Week critics talking about the genius of Chaplin, the filmmaker. Now we look at this period of his life where he becomes persona non grata in the United States. He's dealing with his personal relationships that are causing tumult in his life. He goes on trial. His life is essentially falling apart, despite him being a film icon. Thanks so much, Scott, for joining us. We appreciate it. This must have just uh, taken a tremendous amount of research to go through all the different source material for chronicling this part of a chaplain's life. Well, yes, but there was a pandemic on, so I had nothing but time. <laughs> <laughs> I sat at home, and, and, and uh, the chaplain archive is digitized. So, you so were able to... I was able to access stuff through the computer, which was, I couldn't have written the book otherwise, you know, uh, because the libraries were all closed. And the, the period I tend to write about, the, uh, quote, golden age of Hollywood, unquote, uh, as it recedes further into the past, it's more a question of archival research than it is of actual human beings to talk to. Mm-hmm. Most of them are at Forest Lawn. Yeah, right. So uh, the uh, the chaplain, the digitization of the chaplain archive was invaluable to me. You know, I, I remember so well as a teenager, the 1972 Oscars, when he gets the Lifetime Achievement Award. And I, of course, I knew who he was, but it had limited exposure to his films. It would be later years that I went back and saw the Chaplin greats. But um, I was just struck by the adulation of the film community for this man. And my sense was it wasn't just for the greatness of his films, but for what he had endured as a result of the United States turning its back on him. You know, Take us back to 72 and what that event symbolized. Well, he had been kicked out of the country in September of 1952. So it's almost 20 years later. Uh, he had not set foot back in America in the tw- intervening 20 years. Uh, after his reentry permit was revoked by uh, the attorney general, Harry Truman's attorney general, uh, and he was basically uh, kicked out of the country. Uh, he was outraged, angry, uh, thoroughly uh, out of sorts, whatever, uh, however you want to phrase it. But, I mean, his letters that he wrote after he settled in Switzerland about uh, six, eight months later, are to friends like James Agee and Clifford Odets, uh, good friends that he had in California, and Leon Fuchtwanger, the author of Jew Seuss, and his wife. Uh, he had a small but very close-knit circle of friends. Uh, they're full of uh, unprocessed anger, as he put it in, in one letter, I wouldn't go back there if Jesus Christ was president. Wow. <laughs> so it took 20 years, basically. And part of his, his uh, alienation from America, aside from... Uh, uh, what amounted to 10 to 12 years of character assassination uh, and disinformation 
was the fact that by 1952, when he was kicked out of the country, there was nobody left to stand up for him. Hollywood, the, the blacklist was in full tilt. Most of the blacklistees were uh, dying, dead, moved to Mexico, moved to London, or in New York City. There was nobody living in Los Angeles and getting any work, really. Uh, so when he got kicked out of the country, there were only three people in Hollywood, really, who stood up to uh, uh, stood up for him and said this was a, a terrible miscarriage of justice. And it was Sam Goldwyn, uh, William Wyler, and Cary Grant. Now, there were a lot of leftists in Hollywood at the time. Why does he become such an—is it that he was British that enabled them to keep him out of the country? No. Well, he, was, he had never become an American citizen. He was always a resident alien. Uh, and he paid his taxes here and everything else. But he had never technically become a citizen. So whenever he left the country, which was infrequently, he hadn't been out of the country in 20 years, since 1931. Because uh, he was a workaholic, basically, he simply didn't his like studio to, on La Brea. The studio on La Brea. Else. He didn't like to be torn away from his 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 core, and his core was the studio. Uh, so when he was torn away uh, involuntarily, it was a terrible psychic shock. You know, he's in the middle of the Pacific one day out of New York and the Queen Elizabeth, and he gets this notice that he has to reapply for his reentry permit. Now, what he did not know was that a week after uh, he was uh, his reentry permit was revoked, the INS had a meeting at which they uh, came to the uh, agreement that if he did come back, they'd have to let him back in the country because he'd never been convicted of a felony, never been convicted of anything, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, he, there was no legal basis for excluding him from the country. Uh, but he did not know that, and his back was thoroughly up, and he didn't want to be invited to a party, reinvited to a party where he'd been kicked out already. So he decided to uh, reinvent his life in Europe. He bought a manor house in Switzerland for his growing family, his wife, and he had four children at that point, whether they ended up having another four, eight in all, uh, four in Switzerland, four in America. So it was a complete uh, jumping of the rails, as it were, of his of the momentum he'd built up since 1913 when he uh, started working in American movies. So uh, uh, more than a decade before uh, these events you're just talking about, he makes The Great Dictator, uh, a film in, in which first film with dialogue, uh, earns five Oscars, including nominations for Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Screenplay, all those nominations but its politics are really front and center, including this speech that he gives at the end of the film. I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. 
as Charlie Chaplin in the final speech from the great dictator, which is his uh, satire and commentary on fascism and on Adolf Hitler. Uh, did he spend considerable time crafting that speech? Do you know? The speech was always uh, going to be the ending of the film. Uh, it went through innumerable drafts. There are uh, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of pages, sometimes just a phrase, sometimes a sentence, sometimes an entire paragraph. Uh, and he wrestled with it throughout the production of the picture uh, because it, it, if you've seen the picture, it's directly addressed to the camera. He steps out of mm-hmm. character. He's not yeah. speaking as the tramp. He's, he's not speaking. He's in, as... wearing the, the yes. uh, costume, as I recall, though, of the character. Correct, correct. But he, as the camera moves in, he looks at the camera and he doesn't speak as the character. He's playing the little Jewish barber who's mistaken for Hinkle, the dictator of Tomania. Uh, he speaks to the camera and he speaks as Charlie Chaplin. Uh, this was always going to be the ending of the film. Uh, the question is, what does he say? So it was, it went through innumerable drafts throughout the production of the picture, and it was a long production, of, uh, and it was a picture really no one wanted to make except him. Franklin Roosevelt wanted the picture made, but nobody in Hollywood wanted the picture made. Uh, even the British Foreign Office didn't want the picture made because Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister, and he was attempting to buy Hitler off. Uh, and Hit- and Chaplin understood, as Roosevelt did and as Churchill did, that Hitler was not going to be bargained with, that he was a mad dog, and you have to put a mad dog down. Uh, the only way to do it is to fight. Uh, so there's a letter in the book from Jack Warner, who had just emerged from a meeting with Franklin Roosevelt in the Oval Office. And o- o- Roosevelt had brought up Chaplin's plans to make The Great Dictator, which were in flux, and this is in 1939 now. Uh, and he hasn't started shooting yet. And he's one week he's going to do it, another week he's thinking about it. And Roosevelt said he really hoped Chaplin would go ahead and make the picture, that it was important. And he thought it would make a big effort because at the time, at the end of 1939, America's an isolationist country. Congress is isolationist. The American public's isolationist. The Jews were not our problem. The Nazis were not our problem. Roosevelt knew better, and Chaplin did too. But he wanted the picture made. And finally, uh, Chaplin in September 39 uh, began shooting but it didn't come out until October of 1940. And everybody said it was going to be a catastrophe because in the intervening t- period, nothing had changed. America was still isolationist mm-hmm. in October of 1940. We didn't become interventionist until Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. But as it happened, the film was a huge commercial and largely cr- a huge critical success as well. So he got away with it, even though everybody was saying they weren't even sure it was going to be released. And he said, I don't care, I'll rent halls, I'll put up tents, the picture will be shown, you know, if I have to, if I have to. We're talking about Charlie Chaplin, his legacy, the politics of Chaplin, and Scott Iman's new book, Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided. We'll be back with more with Scott in just a minute. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Water and Power, inviting everyone to join the ripple effect. 
Water plays a pivotal role in our lives, and every individual's actions matter in preserving this resource. Each action we take starts the ripple of change, making a greater impact throughout the community. Be part of the ripple effect and learn more about water programs, workshops, and ways to save at pwpweb.com slash the ripple effect. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle with noted biographer Scott Iman. His new book, Charlie Chaplin vs. America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided, takes us back to this period of Chaplin's life where, following his tremendous success as a filmmaker, he uh, is out of the United States, doesn't see himself as able to return, and lives a life in exile for the intervening decades. And there were multiple reasons for that, which Scott details in the book. We're talking about the speech at the end of The Last Dictator, the whole satirical um, take on, on fascism and essentially on Hitler. Um, was there response from the right wing of America that was negative to that film, which sort of put Chaplin on the radar, um, made him a critical figure? The Great Dictator is the definitive example of premature anti-fascism. Uh, even as the picture was being made, columnists like Hedda Hopper uh, were, were were writing that, A, the picture would probably never be released, and if it was released, it would be a catastrophe because nobody would go to see it because nobody wanted to be bothered with all that silliness that was going on in Europe. Uh, the picture itself proved them wrong, but it put him, shall we say, on the wanted list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, shortly after The Great Dictator, about 18 months after The Great Dictator was released, he began making speeches after Pearl Harbor for uh, America to open a second front to aid Russia, who had become our allies after uh, uh, after the uh, beginning of the war for America. And for the right wing in America at that time, Russia could never be our ally. They were simply an enemy in waiting. And But Chaplin's th- feeling was simply uh, the sooner Hitler is defeated, the sooner we can all resume our lives. Uh, and uh, anything that aids Russia will aid in defeating Hitler. Uh, the logic was there, but uh, again, nobody wanted to. A lot of people in America didn't see it that way. So he's an anti-fascist, but what what are his politics beyond that? Uh, his politics were kind of utopian. Uh, he never uh, he never voted in America. He wasn't a citizen. Uh, he he was a. Uh, a I thought about calling him, referring to him in the book as a champagne socialist, but uh, I thought that would be unfair because he lived his politics in a way that very few people do, and champagne socialist implies a certain triviality, a certain uh, not lack of seriousness. He was very serious uh, because he bet everything. Uh, he he was a man who always who always interacted with his times, you know, in the same way that Picasso did. Uh, during the Depression, he made modern times where, where everything is destabilized and, and the tramp and everybody else has to just keep moving, where there is no permanence to be found because of economic conditions. The great dictator d- uh, takes on fascism. Um, Sherverdeau takes on uh, mass murder. Uh, he always interacted with his times. That was part of his idea of what an artist needed to be. Uh, the FBI investigated him for 12 years and counting. 
uh, desperately trying to find evidence of communist membership, sympathies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He was never a member of the Communist Party. He never donated a dime to the Communist Party. He never went to a communist meeting. And the idea, the very idea of someone as reflexively, uh, ferociously independent as Chaplin was, aligning himself with any kind of political movement that was completely top-down in nature, it was intrinsically absurd. And if anybody had thought about it for more than 10 minutes, they would have realized that. But it wasn't that kind of time where any kind of nuanced thinking was uh, was being uh, done. On the sexual side of, of his behavior, when does the American public start becoming aware of the relationships that he's had with with girls who are not yet of age? His second wife, uh, Lita Gray, who he married in 1924, was 16 years old and pregnant at the time of their marriage. Uh, he paid a doctor to falsify the birth certificate of, of his first child with her uh, because she had been pregnant while they were before they were married. Uh, the divorce from her came two years later. It was catastrophic. It, it meant he had to pay the largest divorce settlement in California history up to that time. And it got it occasioned a great deal of negative comments at the time. Uh, his his next relationship was with Paulette Goddard, a beautiful uh, young actress in her 20s at the time, uh, who he made a star with Modern Times and The Great Dictator. Uh, they lived together openly. They told people they were married. Everybody assumed they were married. They were never married. I believe the phrase is shacked up. Mm -hmm. uh, but they did go through a uh, Mexican divorce uh, in uh, after the great dictator in order to give the impression that they had been married in the first place. That's pretty unique to go through an unnecessary divorce to pretend you'd been married. It was protective coloration for her career because she had just lost out on the Scarlett O'Hara, part of Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind, when David Selznick had hired Vivian Lee, who was, I think, a better actress than Paula Goddard was. Uh, but the fact that she was uh, living with Chaplin and nobody was quite sure if they were married or not may have been a factor. What nobody knew in the public was that Vivian Lee was living with a Laurence Olivier at the time, and they weren't married either. Mm. But the Vivian Lee-Laurence Olivier relationship wasn't public knowledge, whereas Chaplin and Goddard were. Because they'd been on screen together. Exactly. And, had, and it know. was known that they, you know, she was yeah. living in his house, et cetera, et cetera. So they went through this <laughs> Mexican divorce in order to give the impression they'd been married, but they never were married. So, uh, and shortly after that, he became involved with a woman named Joan Barry, who was 22 or 23 at the time, who had been the mistress of J. Paul Getty uh, in Oklahoma a little bit earlier. Uh, Joan Barry thought it would be fun to go into the movie business. She thought she could be an actress. So she came to Hollywood with a letter of introduction. She met Chaplin. One thing led to another. They became lovers. He signed her to a contract. He started giving her acting lessons, signed her up at Max Reinhardt's studio in Hollywood for acting lessons. She was bored. She didn't really have the temperament to, to buckle down and study and to take things seriously. Uh, they were together for about a year. She left, went back to Oklahoma, J. Paul Getty, and then came back after some months to uh, California and announced to Chaplin she was pregnant and he was the father. And he did the math, and he realized he couldn't be the father. She insisted he was the father. And they did a blood test. And they, it, uh, Yes, they did a blood test. Uh, which proved he was not the father. But of at the that child. time, as you write, they didn't accept that as definitive. Not in California. It was not dispositive by itself. The jury could ignore the blood test if they so chose. And they did. Which is exactly what they did when the paternity uh, 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 trial came to uh, court. Uh, the blood test was entered into the, the jury, shook their heads, and said, guilty. 
uh, Chaplin tried to appeal. The appeal, appeal was denied. So for the next 18 years of his life, he had to pay child support for a child that wasn't his, which was another burr under his saddle. Uh, I guess you could call it a miscarriage of justice. But the fact that he was this time uh, 53 or so, and she was 22 or 23, and they had had uh, a sexual relationship, which he didn't try to deny, uh, also mitigated against him. And as the, tri- the paternity trial was getting underway, he married Una O'Neill, the daughter of Eugene O'Neill. And how old was she? She was 18. Okay. And uh, that seemed to confirm everybody's deepest, darkest suspicions about his uh, sexual proclivities. And she, they would be together how many years until his the death? The rest of his life. They yeah. were together uh, 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 34 years. Scott, 34 years. thank you so much for coming in and talking about Charlie Chaplin versus America when art, sex, and politics collided. Another wonderful book, and we appreciate you talking with us Thank about. you, Larry. It's been great. Thanks so much. Scott Iman, the author of the new book. Thank you so much for joining us on Film Week on LAS 89.3. Have a wonderful weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.